Ephesians chapter 5. A few weeks ago, I spoke to you about the importance of marriage and family. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the blessing of the church. And then today and next week, Lord willing, I would like to speak about how we should live in the broader world. We've already read the context, really, the larger context, which runs from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, through Ephesians 5, 17. Josh read that. I really want to emphasize one particular verse, chapter 5, verse 10. Ephesians 5, verse 10, says that we should try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's it. That's the simple message that I've been given to bring to you today. Brothers and sisters, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There's a similar text down in verse 17. He says in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen, friends, this world is no friend to grace. One of the greatest things that's going to be required of you and I as Christian people living in this world is discernment, understanding, living in a careful, discerning, understanding way, making our way through this world that is not a friend to grace, but is hostile to the Word of God. Now, in order to really highlight this point and see it uh, for what it really means, I'd like to set it in its broader context here in the book of Ephesians. Um, And and let me go to the broadest context of all first, and then we'll kind of work our way. So we're going to sort of narrow in, right? Like, Like looking at a microscope. And you look with, the, with the, the broadest view, and then you sort of narrow in and narrow in. So let's think about the whole book of Ephesians. Where does this statement fit into the whole book? Well, Ephesians is roughly divided into two halves, chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. Chapters 1 to 3 speak about our calling as Christians, our calling as Christians, And Paul says in chapters 1 to 3 that that call to Christ is rooted in God's eternal decree of election in which we were predestined to be God's children, both from the Jews and the Gentiles, made one together and one in Jesus Christ through the redemption and the forgiveness of sins that is in Him, so that we might be a people who are holy and blameless before him to the everlasting praise of his glorious grace. That's our calling. That's essentially Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. Now, that is primarily all about the work of God. God's done this. It's God's grace. It's God's goodness that has called us effectively to himself, made us one with Christ. But then when you get to chapter 4, 5, and 6, he begins to speak of the outworking of that holy calling. And a holy calling will issue forth in holy living. 
And so he moves from talking about our calling to talking about our walk, our walk as Christians. Look in chapter 4, if you want to flip back, uh, verse 1, you see this is the way he begins this whole section. Therefore, I therefore, excuse me, a prisoner of for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What he says is that there is a kind of walk that is in keeping with the calling that you have in Christ. If you are called, then walk according to that calling. Now, Paul uses the word walk as so frequently that that we almost intuitively, instinctively understand it. But because of that, because he uses it so frequently, it almost loses its unique verbal weight. So I wanted to pause and just think about that for a minute. When Paul talks about our walk or walking a certain way, this is, of course, an idiom, a metaphor for our life. Your walk is your life, but not just your life as a whole, but your life viewed as step by step by step, a little by a little lived out over the course of time, one day at a time, little day-to-day decisions that all taken together chart the path of your span on this earth is your walk. And the backbone of the structure of the section that we read earlier, chapters 4 and 5, is, is, is uh, around this contrast between the way you used to walk before you were called and the way that you will walk and should walk now that you are called by God. There's a real contrast here. And I want you to see, this is sort of the backbone structure by which Paul organizes this section. Look in chapter 4, verse 17, for example. He says, Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. That's a term he uses to describe unbelievers in general. No longer walk as unbelieving people walk. Now the contrast to that is unfolded throughout the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and I'll show you that he describes a Christian walk in three ways. First in chapter 5, verse 2, He says there, walk in love as Christ loved us. And then in chapter 5, verse 8, he says in the end of verse 8, now walk as children of light. And then finally in verse 15, he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So in contrast to unbelievers, Christians are to walk in love, to walk in light, to walk in wisdom. There's a contrast. All of the little everyday choices that believers and unbelievers make, that in turn sets up a contrast in their lives. Their lives go different paths because they're walking differently. Now, to see the starkness of this contrast between the church, believing people, and the world, I want you to go back to chapter 4, verse 17. This is the first verse 
that began our text, 417. And let's just work our way through this little couple of verses. Here we see a description of worldly walking, worldly decision-making. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. All right, so the root of what's wrong with a worldly life, the root of what's wrong there is an unregenerate mind, an unregenerate way of thinking. And friends, this is so incredibly important. How you think. How you think will set the course for the decisions that you make, the steps that you take, and really set the trajectory of your whole life. And Christians are characterized by the fact that they, they think differently. The world is characterized by what Paul calls here futile thinking. And I want to remind you that behind every bit of bad walking is bad thinking. So what are you thinking about? How are you thinking? And I'm mostly here, I'm mostly here speaking to my brothers and sisters, you believers. Is your thinking being transformed by God himself, by the words that come from his mouth? That's what characterizes a Christian. That's what shapes a Christian's walk, as opposed to the walk of a believer, which he says is characterized by futility. Human thinking, apart from a submission to divine revelation, is actually pointless and futile in terms of real meaning and purpose. It is futile. Now, how do people get that way? How did human beings, just in in ordinary thinking, end up with futile Thinking. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So number one, he says this, that the futile thinking of unbelievers comes from their, what what he calls the darkness of their understanding. Now, Unbelievers have the same mental equipment, but it's just as if the lights aren't on spiritually. There's a darkness in their understanding. It's not that, it's not that unbelieving people are not smart. Very, very smart people in this world. It's just that they're not illuminated. Right? The God himself has not turned on the light so to speak. God has not caused the light to shine. They have turned away from the light. And so even in their, their smartness, it produces nothing but futility, ultimately. And this is why Paul prays at the beginning of this letter to the Ephesian church that God might give them the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened. 
He said, I'm praying that the lights will go on for you. And what a blessing it is, amen? If you've ever experienced that, when you were sitting there hearing the word of God or reading the word of God, you're hearing the gospel, and it's like the lights came on. That's the work of God. That's why some people can sit there and like listen to the sermon, and it's like fireworks are going off in their minds. And other people are sitting there, and they walk away, I, I just, I, I, don't, I don't get it. What, what is everybody, you know, this is, this is just a, a grace of God that, that takes the natural human mind, which is dark. All of us, we're, we're darkened in our understanding, and he just brings light to bear so that we begin to see what has been given to us to see. Well, the next phrase is parallel to the first one and helps us understand how this darkness came about. They are alienated from the life of God from the life of God. John 1 talks about how God is is life, and that life is the light of men. John bringing together those two words just like um, Paul does here. Mankind was created in the life and the light of God. But sin brought separation from God, right? What Paul calls here alienation from God. God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you disobey, if you reject me, if you reject living by my words and you decide you're going to live by your own understanding, then in that day you will surely die. And die they did. Die? Did they die? Well, they were put away from the presence of God who is life. And that was their deepest death. Death isn't just about, you know, or life isn't just about your body continuing to breathe. It's about being connected to the life and the light of God. And so Paul says in this book, we, we were born dead, right? Dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God. The next two phrases in the verse really dig right down to the root of this darkness and this alienation. He says, It is because of the ignorance that is in them. This is that ignorance of God and of truth and of reality. But it is not simply a benign ignorance. You know, some things you're ignorant about and it's not your fault, right? You just haven't been taught. But he says here that this ignorance is due to the what? Hardness of heart, due to their hardness of heart. The very root of all problems with the human condition is not intellectual. It is spiritual. It is volitional. It is a refusal to submit to the word of the creator of the universe. And when you finally, by God's grace, do that, I mean, everything becomes clear. The whole world makes sense. Um, the, The goodness, the design, the beauty, the brokenness, all of it just... What God says about you, what God says about everything, it just all becomes clear. But it is a hardness of heart that is really at the root of it all. Now, every pattern of thinking will inevitably lead to a certain pattern of walking. How you think becomes how you will make your decisions and the next step in the course of your walk of life. So what does it look like then with people that when people who have hard hearts, darkened understanding, a lifelong pattern of futile thinking, what does it look like when they live and act 
and talk? What does it look like when they socialize and when they make art and when they express opinions? Well, verse 19 begins to develop that. He says, and they have become callous, that is toward God. They're they're callous toward God. And they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here's the beginning of a walk, right? It's a mind, there's a mind that's alienated from God, and that produces a walk that's given to what he calls here sensuality. Now let me highlight that word for a moment. The word sensuality here, um, I don't know if this is a word or not, but I think it's... It captures the idea. It's unbridledness. It's life that is given over to natural inclinations and feelings and desires without any divine restraint. Sensuality. Life given over to natural feelings and inclinations and desires without any divine restraint. The idea that, you know, I don't don't care what God says or... Whatever, I just, this is what I want, and this is the way I'm going to be. And, and listen, you, you'd think a person that, that's like that would be satisfied uh, by nobody telling him what he can and can't do, right? That's what he always wanted. But the world is never satisfied. The text says that they are greedy, greedy for more. Uh, listen, Living for self never satisfies. Living apart from God never satisfies. This kind of giving yourself up to sensuality, a life of no restraint from God, all it does is make a man greedy for more and more impurity. More and more other kinds of impurity, new boundaries to push against, this is why, um, you know, no-fault divorce, when it became really sort of the norm, this is why it wasn't the last word in the sexual revolution, um, in sexual liberation. It went on to the next thing. And, and then it became an acceptance of homosexuality. And then that wasn't the last word either. Now it's, uh, then it was, then it was a, a recognition of that, that, that gay people could be, quote-unquote, married. And, that, and that's not it either. Now it's transgender affirmation. And I'm going to tell you, that's not going to be the end either. You know, what's the next thing? I don't know what the next thing is. Is it an affirmation of polygamy? Is it an affirmation of man-child love? Of bestiality? There's always going to be something more. This is the way sensuality progresses. It is always greedy for more kinds of impurity. This is why a little porn never satisfies. It's never enough. It always demands more in order to thrill. An unchecked pattern of sin, friends, of any kind, will always take a man further than he ever dreamed he would go. And that worldly walk, that worldly impurity of of life is described further throughout the rest of this section, chapter 4 and into chapter 5. I'll just highlight a couple things uh, without really looking at it too closely. 
he says that that kind of walk is characterized by hypocrisy and lies. It's characterized by an ungodly kind of anger. It's characterized by theft, by foolish, corrupting talk, crude jokes, by bitterness, unwillingness to forgive. That kind of walk is characterized by sexual immorality and impurity of all kinds. It's characterized by covetousness, which is idolatry of the heart. All of these things are characteristic of the walk of people in the world at large who have darkened minds because of alienation from God due to the hardness of their heart. And that way that they think, the natural, human, sinful thinking, unchecked by divine restraint, leads to all of these things. And isn't that true? You just look around in the world. You, 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 you watch the movies. You listen to the world's music. You listen to conversations from unbelieving people. And they are filled with these kinds of things, right? Lying, anger, theft, corrupt talk, ungodly jokes, bitterness, resentment, sexual immorality, covetousness. I mean, that's, that's the world. <laughs> that's the world we live in. That's the world you and I get up and walk around in, a world that we were once part of. Now, in contrast to that, we are raised, the Bible says, to a new life, a new walk. We are dead in Christ and raised up to a new creation with new minds, new hearts, and a new way of thinking that produces a new way of living. Um, look back at chapter 2 for a moment. We didn't, we didn't go quite back this far, but this really sets the, the groundwork for it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, well, let's start in verse 1. And you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's our term. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, we used to walk in our trespasses and in our sins. That was the general course of our life. But now we are raised up to walk in newness of life. Our former condition was that we walked, as verse 2 says, according to or following the what? The course of this world. Now, the word world, the word that's translated world here, the Greek word, is used 186 times in the New Testament, and almost all of them are negative. 
That ought to tell us something. That ought to be formative for us in the way we think. The broader world of unredeemed humanity is viewed very negatively by God. This mass of humanity apart from God, all of the value systems of that world, all of the social structures that it puts in place, that is viewed negatively. And he says, now, we used to walk not only according to the world, but according to the, what? The course of this world. Um, The course of this world. Uh, The word course here refers to a relatively homogenous period of time. We might call it an age, the age of this world. It refers to a contemporary age of a given people in a given society. So like we, um, we do this, we sort of categorize periods of time in our, in our history like um, the Middle Ages or the Age of Enlightenment or the Age of Empire Building or the industrial age, you know, we, there's certain periods of time that just have a certain um, cohesiveness to them. And there is a certain intellectual fashion that is in vogue in every age. We call it the spirit of the age, right? It's the spirit of our age. And you just sort of, it's like, it's, it's sort of like runs in the air. You can't point to one particular bit. It's like, it's just like, it's everywhere. It's like the collective consciousness of humankind at the moment. We, we see that even in our country, even in recent days, as, as the spirit of the age shifts from one thing to another. Uh, for example, there was philosophical modernism, a spirit of the age in the first half of the 20th century, in the 1900s. And that spirit, that uh, that uh, age of modernism affected, you know, a lot of different um, aspects of human culture. It affected artists. There was modern art. There were musicians. It affected architecture. There was modern architecture, fashion designers, city planners. Everybody was a, sort of affected by the spirit of the age. And in other words, this spirit of of the world in all of its manifold variations of ungodliness as is expressed through the spirit of the age is, is, is just more controlling than you would think. There's a certain homogeny, a certain ethos to any given generation of sinners that is just, it just wants to carry everybody along with it. Unless, I mean, unless you're like standing against the current, you're just going to flow down along with it. You're carried along with the course of this age, the spirit of the age. And, if, and I'm telling you, friends, as brothers and sisters, if we don't intentionally think God's thoughts after him and stand where he says to stand, we're just, we're just going to get swept away along with it. It's just the way of the world. How is it that the world uh, seems to be all swept along in this one course in this one spirit of, of a particular age. The answer goes back to uh, Psalm 1, for example. The, the blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. How does all of this happen? Ungodly people counsel together. They counsel each other. They talk together. They write books to each other. 
they put their ideas out on the internet and in movies and in music and in talk shows and in journalism and when they write their histories, all of it, every bit of it is molded and shaped by a particular worldview that exhibits a certain course of that of the world at that time. That's why if you... Um, you know, you go back, for example, and you read older history texts. They just read differently than modern history texts. Uh, ostensibly, the history didn't change, right? But people's uh, communication of that history and the way they tell it and what they say, everything changes. Everything's affected by it. it it's just, it, it, it'll carry the whole world along with it. This is so easy to get caught up in the spirit of the age unless we are intentional and careful about how we walk in this world. Now, you have been called to Christ if you are a believer here. And if you're not, I hope that you hear the call of God saying to you, sinner, come to Christ. Come to my son. Let let down all of the barriers that you put up all of the demands that you have made on me. Listen, who are you to make demands on God? If you will just say, I'll humble myself before you, God, and I'll accept what you say, the, the lights will come on. Everything will become clear. But I'm speaking to you who have been called to Christ. And what does Paul tell us? He says, don't be partakers with this world. Don't become partners with the world. You are to pray that Christ will live in you and through you and to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. So instead of bitterness and resentment and anger that characterizes the course of this world, he says, walk in love. Instead of lies and corrupt talk and coarse jokes and sexual impurity, he says, walk in light. I want to draw your attention again now back to our text in verse 15, chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 15. He says here, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Take note of the first two words. This is is kind of the essence of the message again. Look carefully. How you walk. Look carefully. Now, often, uh, you know, when you translate something, if some of you have done translation, you know, maybe in Spanish to English or, or vice versa. And you know, you can't always translate one word for one word. Sometimes it takes a couple of words to say what, you know, one word says. And, and it's like that in Greek. Sometimes a single Greek word will take two or more English words to accurately translate. An example, right in the next chapter, for uh, just an illustration, when, when he says in chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The words, English words, provoke to anger, three English words, is really all one Greek word, okay? But here, the words look carefully translate two different Greek words, a verb and a kind of adverb. And so there is, first of all, this admonition that we look Look how you walk. In other words, pay attention. Take notice. And and just to stop there, just that word itself implies more intentionality 
than we sometimes exercise living in this world. Look how you're living. You're in danger of just being swept along with everybody else. Look. But then he adds to intensify it. Look carefully. Look diligently. Pay close attention to how you're living, how you're thinking. Living as Christians in this fallen world is going to require a great deal of carefulness and intentionality. You're not going to think right or live right on accident. Not going to happen. You can't just put yourself on autopilot and just kind of go along with what everybody else does and find yourself somehow living in a way that is in keeping with your calling. It requires you to look carefully. This kind of living is going to require discernment, understanding. And now look again at verse 10. This is the text I started with. This is the one I wanted to emphasize. We've built up. This is where we are. He's just said to walk as children of light, verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm pleading with us that we would be people of discernment as we live in this fallen, broken world. To discern means to uh, examine something very carefully, to test it, um, like somebody examining uh, a piece of currency in order to prove it's genuine. And he'll take that thing and carefully compare it to the real thing. Discernment is a careful comparison of every choice we make and every action we undertake to the word of the living God. A careful testing of those things. Discernment is like a doctor who is examining a body very carefully in order to rule out cancer. And first you go to the office and you get a screening and, and then he sends you to multiple diagnostic tests, different technologies, and finally in the end he may even cut you open and, and do a biopsy. Why? Because he wants to be sure. This is the idea here. We should analyze as Christians to analyze our own thinking. If there's one thing we don't think about very often enough, it's our own thinking. Stop and think about your thinking and think about your living that flows from that thinking. It means analyzing our thinking, our choices, and our actions for any sign of sinfulness that needs to be cut out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 uses the same terminology when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, test everything, examine it. Be discerning about it. Test everything and hold fast to what's good and abstain from every kind of evil, every form of evil. Now, in some cases, of course, the line between light and darkness is easy to see. It's easy to determine. But in other times, it requires careful discernment. And, of course, we're all aware that God did not give a specific chapter and verse on every nuanced expression of darkness. And there are some people who have sort of a view of Christian liberty that if you can't point me to exact verse, chapter and verse, that it deals with this very specific issue, then I can just do whatever I want. 
but I hope that we understand that God gave us a book full of principles and most of all, I mean, I mean, commands and instructions, very detailed in some ways, but also principles. But, but even more than that, a, a revelation of his own heart and mind. And then sometimes it's going to take a great deal of discernment to, to take this revelation and to examine ourselves and, and very specific choices that we're making in light of it to try to live in a way that pleases the Lord. I think in doing so, we have to be gracious with brothers and sisters who may disagree on specific applications of that revelation to some very particular choices that they're making that, they, that we may make a different choice. But the point stands for everyone that we must give careful attention to this to living lives that please God and not just getting swept along in the course of the world. And of course, the aim of this testing, this discernment, is, he says, to do what is what? Verse 10, to do what is pleasing to the Lord. Pleasing to the Lord. I want to ask you this. Have you ever asked that of yourself? Am I really pleasing God? Am I really pleasing God with my choices in my life? What is the will of God about what I'm listening to, what I'm watching, what I'm reading, how I'm thinking, how I'm acting? What does God want? What is he pleased with? That is the question that most people fail to ask. You know what we're asking? What do do I like? What do my friends like? What do other people like? We fail to ask ourselves the most fundamental question that Christians ought to ask when they think about how to live, and that is what pleases God. That's where it starts. We pray, Father, your will be done, not mine. Many Christians, quote-unquote Christians anyway, seem to make little or no attempt at real discernment as to what pleases God. They just seem to do what comes naturally or what's easiest or what the prevailing culture all around them is doing with very little earnestness, very little intentionality to be discerning in this world. And of course, I've made the point already, but discernment is a function of our minds And those minds have to be renewed. We already saw this back in chapter 4, that we should be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, a passage that you probably know well. Do not be conformed to what? This world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that, what? By testing, same word here, By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you're going to walk a life that's pleasing to God in the midst of a world that is filled with futile thinking, then you're going to have to be renewed in your mind. What are you filling your mind with? 
when your playlist is filled with the thinking of sensualists, when you saturate yourself in unbelievers' social media feeds, when you consume every latest new series on Netflix or Amazon. And and it's not to say we, we can't enjoy, you know, the good that, that comes from the common grace of God at work in this world, but that every Christian must engage with everything he hears with great discernment that is an outgrowth of his saturating his mind with God's words. And not just, not just reading my Bible, but stop, stopping to think, intentionally think about the application of God's words to the everyday decisions that I'm making about how to live my life and how to guide my family and, and, and the choices that we make and the choices that I make individually. Asking ourselves, what pleases God? Is there any thing in the word that should help me to think rightly about living against the current of this world. We cannot expect the world to help us to think God's thoughts after him. And if all you ever do is fill your mind with things that come from the world, then it's going to be a real struggle for you to live a life that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You cannot constantly feed your mind on the things of the world and expect to be any different from the world. Now I want to put it before you to to earnestly consider this and the ramifications of this truth. If this is really true, what are you feeding your mind on? And maybe some of you just need to say, I, I, need to, I need to just cut this out or make a limit over here. We uh, need to dig into the Word, read books that will drive us into the Word and help us to see the implications of that for how we live. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. That, that change of mind then begins to guide his steps. And, and as he takes his steps in life, as he walks in life, um, he's able to do so in a way, and he will, will do so in a way that, that pleases God. Some of us have, have our minds filled up, filled up with so much of the world's thinking that we only, uh, only that, that little bit of Bible that we get on Sunday morning is, is the only thing that keeps us sort of halfway straight. Not stop to make time to be very discerning, to put the things that you read and hear and listen to to the test. And of course, the great danger in that is that as you think, so will your walk go. And if your walk isn't already something that doesn't please the Lord, if your thinking is, then your walk will soon follow. So brothers and sisters, the message is try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Pay careful attention to how you walk, how you think, 
recognize that if you just become passive, the world will carry you along. You're to live a life against the flow, an intentional life, renewing your mind by the Word of God. It is time for some real self-examination, some real discernment, so that we may walk pleasing unto the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, now is the point to which you have brought us where we need to uh, consider the implications of these broad principles we've discussed this morning. So help your people now, O oh Father. Help them now in this moment and this afternoon and this week and in the days to come. Help us all not to lose sight of this, but to think about the implications of these truths for, for our everyday choices that we may live holy lives, unique and different, against the grain. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.